Hey guys, welcome back to Talk To Me Sister podcast. Season two. If you're new to the pod, we're twin sisters and a ton has happened since last season. Um, you had my baby. <laughs> I'm a cancer survivor. Kathy had my baby. The baby's here, happy and healthy. Yes, and we're advocates for women's health and we're gonna cover a lot of topics this season. So thanks for following along. Okay, guys, we have been anxiously waiting to sit down with Amanda Knox for a while now. Her story captivated us back in 2007. If those listening don't know her story, Amanda experienced a living nightmare when she was wrongfully accused and convicted of killing her roommate, Meredith Kircher, while studying abroad. After being arrested in a different country and coerced by law enforcement in a different language, she was found guilty and spent four years in an Italian prison. Rudy Gaudet should have been a clear and obvious suspect from the beginning. The evidence was indisputable. Meredith's murder was a sexual assault case. He admitted to being in the house the night of the murder. His footprints were found in the blood. He fled the country after her murder. He had a criminal background. He was tried and found guilty before Amanda was even acquitted. If you're listening to this episode... Do yourself a favor, go watch the Netflix documentary, Amanda Knox, or her HBO documentary. Decide for yourself what you believe about her and her case. She actually says at the beginning of the Netflix documentary, she talks to the audience and says, you will either believe I'm guilty or you believe that I'm not. There's no in the middle. Her story is sensitive. It's chilling. It's honestly unbelievable. And the crazy thing is, we could have been her. It could have been any of us. So on this episode you're about to listen to, we're going to chat with her about her story, her time in prison, the media influence, what she learned through it all, and what her life is like today. Enjoy. Amanda, hi. Hello. You almost need no introduction, honestly. Everybody knows your story. We've specifically been following it since 2007. We're similar ages and, you know, just besides everything crazy that has happened to you, um, Amanda, you're an author, you're an activist, you're a journalist. It's crazy to me. You spent four years in the Italian prison. We're going to talk all about that, but you know, you're doing incredible things right now. You have a wildly intriguing podcast called Labyrinths, which we love. And you just did an episode recently about um, psychedelics and mental health, which Mm -hmm. we're wanting to do an episode on that. And that's going to have to be another conversation because I'm so interested in that. And I loved your episode. So I won't go down that tunnel right now, but we'll have to chat about that later. It sounds like a lot of rabbit holes that we could fall (laughs) into. So many rabbit holes. We need to have like... This is why we make outlines, Amanda, because we would not stay on. Oh gosh. Kathy and I would... Yeah, yeah. We need need structure. We're so happy you're with us today. Thank you. you. And Sarah mentioned, I think we're the same age. We were born in 87. Yep. 87. Yeah. So you're in college and we're in college the same semester that you're in Italy studying abroad and you're on the news. And so all of us with our roommates are watching and realizing this could be us. We are watching Mm -hmm. the media villainize you and, you know, tell your story for you. That wasn't your story. And, um, it was obviously such a difficult time. We're excited to hear about it from you. Kathy and I actually both had friends in Florence and parts of Italy studying abroad. I had two roommates that were away studying in Italy while you were there. So it like made it even more real. I don't know. We're like the same age watching your face on the television being like, I identify with her. This could happen to me. Like mm-hmm. what's going on? Yeah. So, you know, that's so you're... interesting um, because I actually was just talking to someone yesterday who is also our same age, young guy who also was studying abroad around the same time he was in France, um, but he was British. And at the time, In Britain, I was portrayed to be obviously guilty and this horrible, vicious person. Mm -hmm. And he said that he remembered like his parents reaching out to him and saying things like, be careful of people like Amanda Knox. Like I was like some kind of like weird 
exchange program boogeyman oh, um, wow. which is super interesting and obviously he, he like then yeah. you know looked into the case afterwards and was like oh wait a second like this ho- like horrible vision of her in my head was totally made up mm-hmm. right like it, it's so interesting to hear people's perspectives of like where they were at the time that it was happening and how that changed people's perceptions of what was happening and who right. I was yeah. 100% and, and, and it's not taking in the information Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, well, it's hard to just start right in, but we would love to know. Um, and well, first, I just want to say you're doing incredible things to reclaim your name and reclaim your story. And we're so yeah. impressed with how you've done that, especially with the voice of the media where you've had to just overcome that. But let's go to the beginning. Let's talk about November 1st, 2007. Kind of started where you were away over the weekend, right, with your boyfriend, uh, Raffaele, and you came back November 1st. Talk to us about, like, what happened initially um, and your feelings there. Yeah, so um, so this is November 1st. So the day before had been, and it wasn't quite the weekend. It was almost the weekend. In okay. fact, um, everyone sort of in town was anticipating like, oh, we're going to have a, a sort of long weekend because October, I think 31st was, I, I think that was Wednesday. And then November 1st was Thursday. And that was also a holiday in Italy. In fact, Halloween wasn't really a holiday in Italy. It was something that was more brought to Italy by foreigners. And this was a a foreigner-heavy town because it had this university for foreigners Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of young people. So there was a lot of, like, Halloween festivities happening. But that's not actually very traditionally Italian. It's the following day, All Saints Day, that is very traditionally Italian when people go and visit their families and, like, remember their ancestors, that kind of thing. So there was this, like, sort of anticipation because that holiday was happening on Thursday that people would just kind of not go to school on Friday and have just a long weekend. And indeed, you know, I had just met this really sweet guy, Raffaele, a few days before, like five days before November 1st. I met Raffaele at this. So not even your boyfriend. Like people say that. I just said yeah. It. People like five say, days. Yeah, five days. Like, and we are super into each other in the way yeah. that like young people who like just meet for the first time and are super excited and so like are spending the night over at each other's houses and just like telling each other everything. And there was this like extra like your Italian dream, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like this little like <laughs> sweet like Italian romance thing, and like we're still getting to know each other, and we both sort of awkwardly speak each other's languages. So there's like miscommute, like adorable miscommunications happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, like it was it was so sweet. And I was just having a lovely time because he's a lovely nerdy guy, likes Harry Potter, likes anime, likes to listen to music and watch. You know, we were watching Ame Lee to get like his oh, very sweet favorite. Yeah. yeah. And and he was like particularly sweet after I noticed that there was like this very um, more like macho aggressive um, feel to the the sort of intergender dynamics in Italy than I was mm. used to. Right. Um, like the yells like the. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, like people would just literally be like, oh, beyond come here, talk to me. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Uh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little aggressive. And he was like sweet and shy. And so I was like, OK, yeah. that that resonates with me. Yeah. No um, wonder you're like, yeah, that's endearing. But yeah, five, but five days like that's wild. Like, how do you even. Yeah. And then you went through this crazy thing together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, five days into our relationship, like we're, you know, had been talking about going to a nearby town and visiting it. And like we had recently gone to Assisi to visit um, St. Francis's tomb. That's like a very famous thing in Assisi. And then he wanted to take me to another town nearby called Gubbio. And so we were planning on actually taking the weekend to go to Gubbio. And the day that we were due to head off, November 1st, um, or no, sorry, November 2nd, I came home to, I spent I spent the night over at his house, I came home to take a shower, and I noticed that my house was not as it should be. And I say that in a sort of vague way, because that's how it felt at the time. Like I knew something was off, but I didn't know what, and I didn't know the gravity of 
what had happened. Um, I came home, I was already sort of half of my mind was already in Gubbio. I was just sort of like getting a shower and taking, you know, changing my clothes and, and gathering a few things so that I could, you know, go away for the weekend. And I came home and discovered this like weird, weirdnesses. Like the front door is wide open, but no one's home. And my room looks fine. And my, and I sort of check around my, um, I guess I, I checked my room. Everything was fine. The, the main like living area was fine. Everything looked normal. So I thought that's odd. Why is the front door open, but no one's here? Maybe someone just is running out really quickly to grab something. I don't know. I'll mm-hmm. just go take a shower. We'll see. Um, our front door was notoriously like bad at latching. Like you had to fully lock, like take your key and fully lock the door in order for it to stay closed. So I thought maybe someone didn't do that. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Go you take a shower. Yeah. too, right? Yes. So I had three roommates total, um, Meredith and then two Italian girls named Laura and Philomena who were slightly older than us. And they were longtime friends. They were the ones who were renting the rooms out in this apartment that they were sharing. See, this Um, is so funny because when all of this was being portrayed on the media and we're like across the globe watching, like, I don't think, and it, it really was a long time ago now, but I don't ever remember you having other roommates besides yeah. Meredith. Like, I yeah. think I found out recently, I was like, oh my gosh, there was more people living in the house. Yeah. And maybe that's, maybe that was just not portrayed or like, mm-hmm. you know, it's so, oh, that's totally. so interesting to me that there was two other w- women there. Yeah. And that choice to like, whether or not to tell that is interesting because it sort of feels more like justifying a, accusing me if we think oh mm-hmm. there's only one other roommate and her she's amanda and she's the one who lives has there to be her, her. Like, it, it has yeah. to be her but mm-hmm. it's like no there were there were other people who lived in that house including a bunch of boys who lived in the apartment below us in this one house mm-hmm. so it's not like it was what? this totally isolated place where there were only two people it was me right. and meredith these two other girls these four other guys like there was this big sort of And in that whole house, probably a lot of different relationship dynamics, people coming and going. Yeah. Meredith was seeing like very casually one of the guys who lived downstairs named Giacomo. Um, But people, of course, don't remember that because um, even just the sort of interpersonal dynamics of of, um, who was casually hooking up with who Mm -hmm. uh, was sort of disappeared when, while I was on trial, Meredith was portrayed as this sort of idealized, pure victim who was never having casual relationships with anyone. She was very serious, like people presented her as if she's this very serious, studious, like never has fun really person. And then there's me, who's her exact opposite. Yes. Who's just... Anything totally and everything. sexualized, yeah. yeah. Um, bringing home boys and um, and you know people making up the idea that like Meredith hated me because I brought home boys and it's like no, like and you grew up you very like conservative, right? I think I heard you say that on your documentary or something. You grew up it, that really wasn't you for some reason. They just continued to latch on to that message. And why do you think mm. that is? That I think it they, was an easy message for people to latch on to. Yeah. It's, um, it's this like Madonna horror dichotomy that is recognizable. We all are aware. It's in the ether of our imagination. It's an easy narrative to put on top of reality and sort of force people into those roles. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what ultimately the prosecutor was attempting to do was to tell a story that would justify him having arrested me before there was ever any evidence. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So keep going. You went, you went home to shower and get ready for your trip. We (laughs) interrupted you because we were like just shocked by already. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it's so crazy. Like the number of crazy things that happened even just from an investigative sense and not even from my perspective, one of those things that I try to point out to people is like, this is a really crazy story. And I was just sort of, it was happening to me. It wasn't really, I didn't really have a big role in what went down. I was just sort of was the 
object mm-hmm. of a lot of people's weird reactions to a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, getting back to that, I took a shower. I noticed that there was something off in the bathroom. There was some spots of blood in the sink and on the floor. But again, nothing that screamed a murder occurred here more like oh did someone maybe hurt themselves a little bit like what you know what what happened or maybe there's like a menstrual Mm -hmm. situation like I, i didn't know but at the same time again no one's home It seems like everything's fine. So I get dressed and I go back to Raffaele's apartment, which is, you know, a five minute walk away. And I tell him about it. And I'm like, hey, Raffaele, I saw these like before we head over to Gubbio, I just wanted to say, like, I'm a little bit confused about this thing that I saw at home. Do you think that it's serious? Should I call my roommates and ask about it? And he was like, yes, definitely. You should talk to your roommates about that because that is weird. And so I, I started calling my roommates and Laura wasn't answering her phone. Meredith wasn't answering her phone. Philomena did answer her phone. And she told me, yes, that is absolutely weird. I'll meet you back at the house. Like we should figure out what's going on. Um, and so Raffaele and I went back to my apartment. Um, we got there before Philomena did. And we took a closer look. We looked into Philomena's room. Her door had been closed. We opened up her door and found that her entire room had been ransacked. The, the oh, gosh. window, yeah, the window was broken. Everything was thrown into it was in disarray. There was glass everywhere. Um, I didn't see it at the time, but there was a rock that had been thrown into the window. And I thought it was bizarre because right there on her desk was her laptop. And I was like, that's weird. If someone broke into the house, why didn't they steal her laptop? That seems like obvious. So odd. Yeah. And and then I went into Laura's room and her room was spotless. Like she had like military style bed like made. Nothing was touched. And I thought, again... That is so weird. Why would someone break into our house and not steal a laptop and only go through one room? Like it seemed really bizarre to me. So then I go and I I go to check Mm -hmm. on Meredith's room. Her door is closed as well. And I discover that it is locked. And I'm like, that's very weird because sure, Meredith has locked her room before occasionally, but like that's not a normal thing for her to do unless she's like, in there changing and doesn't want people to disturb her or whatever. Like it made me think that maybe she was inside. And so Mm -hmm. I started knocking on her bedroom door going, Meredith, are you in there? Like Meredith? Hello? Hello? And no answer. I asked Raffaele to try to kick in her door because I'm like, something's wrong. I don't understand why her door is closed. There's another room's been ransacked. Like maybe her room's been ransacked. So I asked him to try to kick it down. He doesn't succeed. And finally, I'm like, you know what? Actually, maybe we shouldn't be touching anything. We should call the cops. And I don't know how to call the cops. It's not 911 like it is here in the U.S. <laughs> so I asked Raffaele to do it for me. Raffaele calls the cops and tells them that there's been a break-in in our apartment. I'm calling Philomena, telling her that it looks like there's been a break-in, but, you know, her laptop wasn't stolen, so I don't know what's up. She's on her way. And we step outside of the house. Um, Raffaele gets confirmation that there's some cops that are going to come and they're going to check out this situation. We walk out of our house and then like a minute or two later, these two men approach us, walk down our driveway and they say, hey, we're we're the postal police, um, which is there are two police forces in Italy. There's the military police and there's like the local postal police. That's what they call it. Polizia Postale. I am probably translating that wrong, but it's Polizia Postale. (laughs) They were not wearing uniforms. They just looked like regular guys wearing regular clothes. But they say, hey, we are here because of the cell phones. And we go, what are you talking about? Aren't you the people that aren't you coming because we just called the cops because there's a break in? And they said, no, we're looking for Filomena Romanelli because we've found her cell phones. And we were like, what? Cell phones, like cell phones, like two cell phones. And yes. And so I'm like, well, that's weird because I was just talking to Philomena on the phone. So it's, I thought she had her cell phone and they're like, well, let's go inside. 
Um, and we're, and we're explaining to them, well, we're waiting for the cops because there's been a break in and they're like, okay, well, we're going to come, we're all going to go inside. You can show us what you've seen. They put phones on the table and they're like, Hey, so these phones, they don't look like Philomena's to you. They have Philomena's SIM card. And I'm like, that's weird. Okay. Around this time, Philomena and her boyfriend and her two friends finally arrive. They've all been hanging out and they come and they arrive and Philomena identifies the phones as Meredith's. They are Meredith's phones that she um, she gave Meredith a SIM card that like one of her old SIM cards. So that's why Meredith's phone has okay. a name on it. And she's like, this is so weird. Why would Meredith not have her phones? Like, and then I tell Philomena, like her door is locked and Philomena's like, whoa, her door shouldn't be locked. We need to break it down right now. The police are like, I don't know if we should be breaking down anything. And Philomena's like, no, we need to break down her door right now. So she and her boyfriend and the two cops, and I, and also I think her, at least one of her friends walk down the hallway to Meredith's room and break down the door. And one of the huge differences between me and Philomena in that very, very crucial moment was that Philomena was right there when Meredith's door was broken into and she saw inside Meredith's room. She mm-hmm. saw the blood smeared everywhere. She saw Meredith's body mm-hmm. underneath the blanket. She saw what was very obviously a murder and mm-hmm. a horrific crime scene. Like this was, this was like, there was a struggle. There was like handprints smeared with blood mm-hmm. on the wall. Like it was horrible. And I did not see that. It's a living nightmare. It's a, yeah. It's wow. a living nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and she immediately is hysterical, just screaming, crying, it is inconsolable. I can't even understand her. She is like, out of her mind, hysterical. And I'm standing there in the kitchen with Raffaele going, what's going on? The cops sort of like bustle us all out of the house. The house is now closed off as a crime scene. We're not allowed to touch anything. We're not allowed to get anything. Like I was, you know, like, I was like, well, uh, like all of my belongings are in this house. And they're like, nope, it's closed off as as a crime scene. Like you're just going to have to deal with whatever you're wearing and and whatever, like everything is now a crime scene and we all have to get out of the house. So we are, and I'm going, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Everyone's talking in very fast Italian. I can barely understand what's going on. Oh, wow. And I pick up little words here and there. Like I hear the word armadio, which is um, like wardrobe. And Mm. I think, and I hear sangue, blood, um, and I hear Meredith. So I'm trying to piece this all together. What I think I'm hearing is either that it's Meredith in the room and she's in a wardrobe and there's blood everywhere, or it's not Meredith, but it's somebody like, oh, I also heard um, the word piede. Someone was saying piede over and over again. um, And that was because, and it means foot. And it's because the only part of Meredith that you could just see looking into the room was her foot. Mm. Um, She was covered by a blanket, but, you know, it's a person's foot right there. And Philomena was crying a foot, a foot, a foot. So I'm wondering, like, is there a a foot in the wardrobe? Like, I just, I I couldn't. You're trying to piece it all. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to piece it all together. Which is like you were sitting there trying to understand what was going on and the media catches you in your emotions, which are like just confusion and start to twist that in reports and evidence that you may have been involved, right? Exactly. So in the immediacy after all of this happened, without my knowing it, I am under very, I am under the spotlight. In fact, to be honest, everyone's very much under the spotlight. Um, mm-hmm. Philomena's under the spotlight. I'm under the spotlight. Rafael is under the spotlight. And the biggest difference between me and all of them was that I didn't really know what was going on. Um, I couldn't really understand what people were saying. And I really relied on Raffaele to sort of go and talk to people and overhear things to come over and tell me what was going on. And in the meantime, Already news 
vans are showing up and parking across the street and aiming their cameras at the house, but also at us. And, you know, the last thing that I'm thinking about in that moment is, you know, do I look good for the, like, do I look appropriate for the camera? Like I'm just standing there. Or like, how am I acting? Cause they honed in on, they honed in on like how you acted and being so confused. Like you probably had to put so much trust in your boyfriend being somewhat of a translator. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I can imagine just like the panic or like the confusion really of like, Mm -hmm. what's my role? What are they saying? Yeah. And the last thing you're thinking is like, how am I carrying myself? You know, they, they're watching my every move. I'm sure you weren't thinking that at the time. No. And it also like, it didn't even occur to me that that mattered because like I didn't do anything. So like, if anything, I'm just like now thinking, well, the first very selfish thought that I had was, oh my God, thank God I'm alive. Yeah. Because I, you know, I, I hadn't, I'd been planning to spend the night. Like I, you know, if I hadn't met Raffaele five days before I would have been home that night and that could have been me. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, wait, is that, is Meredith dead? Like is what's going on? I don't even like hear, I don't even like fully get confirmation that like exactly what we're dealing with until I get to the police station hours later and Mm -hmm. the cop, like I'm asking the cop, like, wait, so what happened? Is that Meredith? Is she dead? And the cop was like, yep. And he like made a sort of like gesture across his throat of, of, you know, like that. And so that's how I learned that she had been like, that it was the way that she had died was like that her throat had been cut. Um, I'm, I'm horrible. Like people don't say this, but I'm so sorry. This is something you went through. Like I really am. I mean, yeah, I'm when you say it back, I can tell you've said it so many times, but I'm like, I forget that I need to ask you questions because I'm listening to you talk. I know like, I'm like, the, but it is true. I mean, you were pretty much arrested and imprisoned before there was even evidence or a case or anything. It was like, that was the decision that was made to portray you in this light. And then you were at the mercy of just, you know, being able to communicate what you could. So how did things go forward? They arrested you eventually. And then you're trying to navigate what's going on in Italian. And do you feel like it's just the government and how they handle criminal cases over there that they were able to get away with so much? That's an interesting question because, you know, one of the big takeaways over the years is, um, for uh, for me, just having encountered other wrongfully convicted people here in the United States is that this is absolutely not just an Italy problem, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a human problem. Um, humans make mistakes, humans misjudge others, humans, uh, will try to cover up their mistakes, um, even at the expense of innocent lives. Like this happens everywhere. And in my own case, in, in a lot of ways, it's so, so similar to things that happen here in the U.S. Like, you know, a detective gets an idea in their head and about who's guilty and then pursues that case and tries to find evidence to prove their instinct, their instinct instead of allowing the evidence to reveal to them who to actually, you know, direct their attention to. And so like a case is built up based upon a very targeted and like incentivized Mm -hmm. motive instead of like just gathered naturally. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, there's like, there's a lot of public pressure, like a few days after the crime had even been discovered, I'm arrested and they're making big international press conference announcements about how the case is closed and aren't they so great in Italy that they were able to figure out this case and put a stop and um, get the criminals and put them in jail um, in just, you know, five days. But then, of course, the evidence comes back and it points to someone completely different who has a rap sheet, who has fled the country. And the thing that's like, super unusual about my case is that in a lot of wrongful convictions cases here in the U.S., the wrongfully convicted person is wrongfully targeted and we don't know who did it, 
right? Like eventually they get DNA or they revisit the DNA in the case and they're like, oh, weird. It's not the person that we have behind bars. Now we have this DNA and we don't know who it belongs to. But in my case, they knew exactly who that DNA belonged to. They knew exactly Rudy Mm -hmm. Gaudet. He had a history of breaking and entering. His fingerprints were on file at the police office. So when they found his fingerprints in Meredith's blood at the crime scene, they knew exactly who it was. But by that time, they had already arrested me. And so there's this big manhunt for Rudy Gaudet. And instead of the police admitting that they had arrested the wrong person at the beginning, they say, oh, Rudy Gaudet just must have done it because Amanda told him to. So then they like create this this crazy story of how I am this like femme fatale criminal mastermind who orchestrated a sex, a, a, a sex orgy death game and that. Of Rudy Gaudet was my like rape puppet. Like, oh my gosh. So it's insane. But like, what's crazy is that that story, which was so absurd and completely made up and not supported by any evidence whatsoever, was taken to court and was, and I was convicted based upon that story. And I spent four years in prison based on that story. And I was struggling to prove my my innocence for eight years because that story was so much more compelling than the truth. We are excited to have Seeking Health back as a sponsor for season two of the Talk To Me Sister podcast. If you want quality vitamins, you can use our code SISTERS2 for 10% off your next order. This exclusive coupon gets you 10% off your next order. That's sisters to visit seekinghealth.com. That is so wild. We're going to talk about the media here. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into that, but I do want to ask you about prison because four years is a long time. Like I want to know kind of like what your experience was like in an Italian prison. I know you spoke Italian, but did you make any friends there or did anyone give you the advice? Like, I don't know if you were talking to your family at this point. Did they say like, don't talk to anybody? Mm. Um, Cause I'm putting myself in your shoes. I would almost want to, if it was me, I would almost want to feel like I wanted to like speak my truth, but then you're also afraid people are going to twist the narrative. Mm. So can you talk about like your time in prison and it, Anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you like five um, questions in yeah. that question. And also like all of those questions are like, well, it, you know, prison wasn't the same the entire time that I was there um, because, you know, there was a period of time when I was still on trial and still being investigated. And then there was the period of time where I had been convicted and I was facing yeah. a very different, what I thought, reality. A big thing to note is I was 20 years old when I was arrested and put into jail. So um, I was very young and I, I basically became an adult in a prison environment. Mm. Um, Like I have no idea what people's twenties are like because my twenties were prison and trial. And, um, as much growing up as anyone does in their twenties, um, you know, learning who they are and mm-hmm. developing relationships and developing friendships and and growing out of them and and trying on careers and whatever, like that same amount of development was what I was going through in a very very different environment, mm-hmm. um, an environment that was extremely restrictive. Um, purposefully punishing made me feel like, um, I wasn't entirely human. Um, and in which I was surrounded by people who had committed crimes. So a lot of, a lot of people who had done bad things, um, but who also were incredibly, incredibly hurt people. 
um, people who the vast majority of them had been victims of crime before they ever committed a crime themselves, who grew up in insane poverty or like with mental illness or violence around them people who were very desperate or very broken or very much in need of help. And this was a very, very foreign environment for me, a place where I was the most highly educated, despite being one of the very youngest. I was the healthiest. Um, I had all of my teeth. I was not struggling with, you know, hallucinations. I wasn't addicted to drugs. Um, These were the types of people that were my companions. And a lot of them foreigners. Um, So I would say over half of them weren't even Italian. So a lot of them didn't speak the language very well. I ended up learning Italian. I I could speak maybe like childish Italian before going in there. And then I became fluent in prison and courtroom Italian is very different than prison Italian. So I kind of became fluent in different kinds of Italian. And, uh, and then I became a translator and a scribe. That's basically what my, I ultimately, my role became in that environment was I recognized that the skill set that I had to offer my community was the fact that I could read and write and I could mm-hmm. translate. So that's what I did the vast majority of the time is I wrote people's letters for them. I read their court documents for them. I um, I translated for the, especially like there was a, a large Nigerian women population mm-hmm. who, you know, if they had, you know, a, a stomach ache, they didn't know how to go to the doctor and tell them this is my issue. So I would go with them to the doctor explain what was going on. And then a lot of my time, a lot of it was getting into this routine of trying to make each day worth living by just doing at least one thing that mattered to me. And, Hmm. you know, that could be doing more sit-ups than I did yesterday or writing a letter to my mom or you know, reading a whole book in one day, like stuff like yeah. that. Um, yeah. That's honestly, that's a good little like truth nugget of hope too, because obviously your situation is super extreme, but there's a lot of people who probably live some day to day with like little hope for what their future could be. And so mm-hmm. just to find like one thing of purpose to hold on to, I think is like a really good message for somebody that feels kind of hopeless. So you gave yeah. us that without really meaning to, but um I was thinking about while you were talking this whole experience in your 20s, this trial and prison and all of it, it's like the media really was not on your side. And clearly, um that probably I mean I know it affected how you trusted people and how you um Like just trust in general, I'm sure. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was thinking about that. Like, you know, when you were kind of ready to tell your story and people like Netflix or HBO or people were like giving you this platform, did you ever feel hesitant or, um, you know, even like in the States or these big media platforms and get nervous that they were going to like twist something or like how involved were you with like, the documentaries and stuff. Like, did you ever, you know, did it take a long time for that trust to be built back up again, just in me- with media in general? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question because, um, it's kind of the heart of my work today, just yeah. all of my horrible experiences with media and how I feel like there are unethical and ethical approaches to, um, particularly people who are, who's the reason why you want to talk to them is because you want to talk to them about the worst experience of their life. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I should say is that a lot of the times that I've spoken to media, I was not ready to talk Mm. to media. I was not ready um, to tell my story because I was, you know, like when I first came out of prison, for a few years, I was still processing what had happened to me and what it meant to me and 
w- how people were going to judge me based upon what my experiences wa- were and how to like explain what it felt like to go through an interrogation or whatever. Like mm-hmm. so many of the times that I have spoken publicly about the worst experience of my life, I absolutely was not ready. And many times have been exploited and taken advantage of because I was not ready. Hmm. And because, you know, media professionals wanted me to be their subject on their schedule. And they um, wanted to tell the story. Right. Exactly. And when it's when it's hot, you know, like they yeah. want the they want the the first ever interview and they want it ASAP and they're gonna do their documentary with or without you, that kind of attitude. Um, and I think the reason why I ended up agreeing to the Netflix documentary wasn't because it was Netflix at the time. I didn't know where that documentary was going to come out, but because yeah. the filmmakers who had, you know, invested years of going to Italy and getting footage and observing and, and, and analyzing and talking to all different kinds of people. Um, when they approached me, they said, Hey, like, we think that what happened to you is not just a story that's like a scandalous, you know, one shot story. We think it says something really big about the criminal justice system and about the media. And we really, really would love to have your perspective. And indeed, we don't think that we can ethically do this film without your perspective. So, you know, this film lives or dies by whether or not you want to take part in it. Mm -hmm. And when I said that I wasn't ready to take part in it, they said, understood. And they walked away. And amazing. They respected you for the first time, probably. Yes. That was an extremely uncommon response. The vast majority of time people are telling me we're telling your story, whether you like it or not. So it's in your best interest to trust us. To say something. And, 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 you know, like, and we're just going to get to edit it the way that we want to edit it. (laughs) And, oh my gosh, like you've been through enough, like that's so stressful to come back to all that. And to feel like I am at the mercy of other people's judgment still. Again, yeah, again, like I'm at the mercy of other people's, a bunch of strangers who have their own ideas in their head and their own incentives and their own whatever, like they're the ones who are judging me and they're the ones who are getting to decide who I am as a person. And that was incredibly intimidating. Um, I've had both good and mostly bad experiences from that. Um, but the the nice thing about these filmmakers who did the Netflix documentary is I noticed that they treated, they asked me different kinds of questions than people who like, you know, the Diane Sawyers of the world, who mm-hmm. they just wanted me to sort of be there to fill in their nice little like story plot lines. Like, right. uh, did you or did you not kill Meredith Kircher? What yeah, it's like interrogation, interrogation yeah. sort of. Yeah. And these like filmmakers instead asked me not just, you know, what happened, but what did I think about what happened? And allowed me, allowed like my perspective to play a role in their storytelling process. And I didn't have editorial control over how that Netflix documentary was going to come out. I had no idea what story they were going to tell. In a way, I had to trust. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, put myself at the mercy of these people who I hoped would give me at least the benefit of being a human and not just a character. And I think they did a really good job of doing that where they, again, like they asked everyone who they interviewed, not just what happened, but what do you think about what happened? And a lot is said in what people think about what happened and not just what did they do? Like uh, a great example is this um, tabloid journalist. They're asking like the tabloid journalist, not just like, you know, what did you write about Amanda at that time? But also why did you write it that way? And what were you getting out of it? And of course, like he lives in this little tabloid journalist bubble where it totally makes sense to exploit the worst experiences of people's lives for the sake of like fame and, and, you know, journalistic glory and money and clickbait and la, 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 la. But like, he doesn't realize that he's revealing a really sort of ugly secret about our consumerist 
capitalist journalism, which is that people have lost sight of the human beings who are at the, who are the sources of their stories. And, Mm -hmm. and they've sacrificed the truth for the sake of clicks. And it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, Um, I do like, I have a question about that because I do feel like I don't know if this is improving. I'm hoping that it is, is women getting their stories out more. Um, I'm wondering and I'm hoping and I'm thinking that since like um, the Me Too movements and women getting, uh, voicing that we're stuck and we are not holding similar places as our male equals, do you feel like since those movements, women are getting their voices and their stories heard more? I mean, we still have so much work to do, but do you, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that in the past handful of years? So I have like some good news and some bad news. The good <laughs> news is, <laughs> the good news is that I have observed a noticeable shift in the storytelling process, both in like journalism and in Hollywood, where there is this sense of revisiting um, stories where a certain person has been made out to be this very black and white character. And in particularly these stories about people who typically in the past have been marginalized. So we're talking about women who have been slut shamed. We're talking about people of color who have been stereotyped and, and sort of constantly removed from the storytelling process and made into tropes in other people's stories. Um, So there is this shift in, we need new perspective on stories and there are different authors to stories that can tell us new stories that are going to give us a broader and better perspective of humanity as a whole. Um, So there, there is that positive thing. It means that people who normally weren't in the authorship seat have now been allowed the opportunity to have some kind of authorship. And that includes me, right? Like I'm having conversations with people where I'm not just being interrogated. I'm being offered potentially an opportunity to be a creator of my own story and not just a character in someone else's story. That's great. Um, We saw that also with like the impeachment show with Monica Lewinsky, where she was an executive producer on that show. And like two years ago, that would have been unheard of. So like the fact that she has after over 20 years been given the opportunity to to, to tell it from her perspective Mm -hmm. is great. There is still the trick, though, that we have decided that what is her story? So, again, like when I look at the impeachment thing and I look at, oh, yay, Monica is finally in an executive producer seat. I see her being the executive producer seat of, once again, the worst experience of her life, the one that we have decided is her story. And Instead of saying, walking up to Monica and saying, if you could tell any story, what would you tell? And that I think is still waiting to happen because in a similar way where there is interest in me and my quote story, my quote story in a lot of people's minds is limited to what it's like to be in trial and on prison for a crime you didn't commit. And not instead say, what does it feel like to have your life stolen and then to reclaim it again? Because Mm -hmm. really, like when I think about my story and when I become a person who has agency in the things that are happening to me, it's not when I'm in prison and on trial. That's when I was like waiting to be allowed to exist again. The really weird story for me is everything that happens after I get out of prison, after I'm no longer on trial, when I realize, holy crap, the life that I was living no longer exists. Who the hell am I? And Mm -hmm. how do I exist in this world after everything that happened to me? And that's not something that I'm often asked about because people don't, you know, like Mm -hmm. I I fit into a very small box in people's minds and Mm -hmm. I'm exploring I'm sort of like trying to remind people here and there with like, you know, my essay about Stillwater and, and, you know, like certain projects that I'm working on, or even just labyrinths, like even my podcast labyrinths, where like, 
I do refer to all those horrible things that happened to me quite a bit when I interview the, um, my guests, but because I'm trying to build bridges between experiences and help other people find their own voice and their own perspective and find common ground in the human experience, like that's, that's my story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love that you, I love that you said this because I can relate to this a little bit. You know, I have a cancer story, you know, kind of the, what you refer to as that worst part of your life. I get a lot of people asking me about cancer treatment. How was it the day you were diagnosed? All these things. And for so long, I had to wrestle, like even as a survivor, I had to wrestle with like, I don't necessarily want cancer to be like the face of me. I don't want Mm -hmm. people to associate with me with cancer. And I actually don't love talking about cancer. So similarly, I know it's different, but when Kathy and I talk about, you know, when we talk to women, when we tell our story, like what we want to talk to women about is overcoming trauma. Um, what does it mean to get back on your feet and live again? Um, mm-hmm. Something that like similarly, you know, when I watched my hair grow back and I identified with just like treatment every day for two years and that was my mm-hmm. life. And once they said, you're better now, my doctor said, now go live your life. And it's like, that's it. And so (laughs) in in a similar (laughs) sense, I understand what you're talking about on like a tiny, tiny scale, probably just because it's like- tiny, tiny scale. You were were trapped in your own body. Like that's scary. Yes. Yes. That is a good way to put it. Trapped in your own body. No one's ever said that before. But so it's like this message of like, life after death, sort of like you probably Mm -hmm. felt like you died and you have this opportunity at a new life. And so when Kathy and I were talking about you coming on the podcast, we were like, honestly, the overcoming the trauma she went through, like, honestly, so many of our missions are like kind of like in line, like Mm -hmm. giving women a stronger voice after tragedy, finding Uh, pain and purpose, like all of Mm -hmm. those missions we kind of hold on to, like, I feel like, you know, we can relate to that to some degree. So I, I love, I love that you said that. I do. Yeah. And I feel like there is that like focus so much on the trauma and not on the post-traumatic growth that like, ultimately that's the good that comes out of it is it's like, Mm -hmm. can we grow when bad things happen to us? And how did you grow? And how did I grow? Like that's, that for me is like the question. It is. Yes. (laughs) Often left out, which makes healing emotionally and physically from trauma very difficult. So before we talk about the incredible things you're doing now, I would love, like, what are like one or two things that when you came back, you were acquitted, you came back and realized my life is different. My future is different than I ever imagined. What are simple things that, or big things, therapy, EMDR, like what are things that helped you put one foot in front of the other and start reading your story? You know, like one of the single most important things that happened to me, besides having the opportunity to write a memoir and, and in the process, pay back my family so that they weren't, you know, neck deep in debt. Um, after I wrote my memoir, which I, again, not everyone gets to do that. Um, so I'm extremely grateful for having that opportunity. I also think that I wasn't really ready to tell my story at the time that I wrote my memoir. And so I look back on it and I think like, there are things that I would have, like, I have a different perspective on now that I'm older and I can look back on it with more informed knowledge about how wrongful convictions occur, all of that. Still very valuable because it's like a little piece of history in my life. Um, But one of the most important things that happened very shortly after that is someone who worked for my local newspaper. So like super local, not like Seattle, like West Seattle newspaper. Like people who knew you growing up were reading that paper. (laughs) Exactly. Like so small, like the news articles are like this grandma who has her weekly column. Like it's so small. They reached out to me on Facebook asking if I wanted to be a correspondent for them. and. 
initially I was like, oh, great. You know, like someone who's just trying to capitalize on the Amanda Knox bullshit. Like this is like when I'm still very much feeling like I don't know if I'm allowed to exist publicly. Like, do I just hide and work for minimum wage underground for the rest of my life? Like, I don't know. Um, and they are like, no, 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 don't, don't misunderstand. We just know that you are a writer and you wrote a memoir. We think we read it. We thought it was really good. And we are just looking for good writers for the paper. You don't even have to use your name. You can just write anonymously. And I did, I did that for, uh, at least two years. I was writing for them anonymously under a pseudonym. And that was so important because I felt like for so long, the only reason why people cared about me or hated me, like cared to hate me, was Mm -hmm. for how my name was associated with this like international scandal. And I wasn't, I didn't feel like anyone actually cared about me as a person. I didn't feel like, except for like my family and my friends from before, I didn't feel like anyone that I would ever, ever meet again, like in the world as a, as a, as a stranger was going to actually see me and care about me. They, I always thought that they were going to have this idea of me in their mind and that's what was going to matter to them. And I was Mm. always, always always going to be second to people's ideas of me in their head and how they could exploit me or how they hated me or how they loved me or like whatever it was. And this affirmed for me that actually as a human being, I still had value Mm, and I still had a role. And even if it was a small role, you had purpose. And it was something that allowed me to explore the possibility of purpose and to find out what my purpose could be. Mm, Incredible. I, I mean, yeah, that's just, that's a moment of encouragement when probably you didn't expect it to be like, okay, like I can envision a life where I can do this or that. And maybe there's people along the way that will trust me and be genuine, you know? And so I think like Kathy said earlier, like there's something about that that's healing and kind of gives you that extra push to say like, okay, like you can maybe have control over like things you decide to do or how your life's going to begin again and all those things. Yeah. And there Um, aren't as many walls up as you thought. There are these little like secret doorways in, in the walls of life that have been put up around you that other people have like opened that door for you. And, and then your husband meeting Mm -hmm. your husband and that has been huge. Uh, (laughs) Just to have like a life partner that probably you feel connected, soul connected to. Yeah. You talk about trust, like feeling safe to come home Mm. to someone Mm. who, um, I just know 100% loves me for me and is there for me like that that is huge um because i didn't know if that was possible for me yeah. you know i i observed mm-hmm. my my raffaele who has had difficulty in that regard where like he you know tried some like online dating and stuff and people would like i know a tabloid journalist went on and tried to like hook up with him so that she could write tabloid articles about him like Oh my gosh. Horrible stuff. Like you can't bless these like worst case scenarios of like, you can't like the possibilities of human connection are so strictly limited because there is this constant justified paranoia. Um, But when I met my, my now husband, Mm -hmm. it was very, very shortly after I had been fully acquitted. So fully acquitted um, by the Italian Supreme Court in 2015, his first novel that was published came out in May of 2015. It's called War of the Encyclopedists. And I had been given an advanced copy of his book by the newspaper that I was working for, this West Seattle newspaper, because he was a local author. That's a wonderful thing about like local newspapers is like they don't just do the like big scandalous stories. They're also like just interested in the community. And they're like, oh, hey, a new bar opened up and it's Harry Potter themed or like, you know, it's not not like breaking news. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's like, oh, also there's a cool book that just came out and it's by a local author. 
author. They're sharing the important things, right? And like they hired me to read and review the book. I read and reviewed the book. I loved it. And I never thought that I was going to meet the author, except like the day after I submitted my review, I noticed that there was this book reading happening at my local bookstore for this book. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I never go out in public, but like, maybe I'll just kind of show up at this like tiny little book reading and, and check out fabulous. It's local books. I such a nerd for that. So I go and I try to be invisible. And of course it doesn't work. Everyone notices that I'm there. (laughs) Um, whisper, whisper, whisper. But what's great is like, my husband is not a true crime guy. Like he's a poetry guy. He went to poetry school twice. <laughs> he, uh, he like love the, that. Yeah. yeah. He got two wow. master's degrees in poetry. And then while I was in prison, he was like roaming the country as an itinerant poet. Like <laughs> that's his history. He's and a romantic. He's a, yes. he's a, he calls himself a romantic nihilist because he's also just like philosophically, like the <laughs> world is inherently meaningless, but love, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you gotta so have, great. you can't have one without the other. You gotta have some exactly. balance. Um, and yeah, so when I met him, he was like, yeah, I think I've heard about you. But like, I didn't follow the case and he wasn't really interested in the case. He was just like, oh, you seem nice. Let's hang out sometime. And I got to know this person, not through the lens of Google and through the lens of the case. He just kind of got to know me just by hanging out. And then, you know, around nine months after we met, we started dating. And even that was kind of sweet because he was like playing the field. I wasn't the only girl he was dating, but his roommate at the time was like, pick Amanda. Oh my God. I love that uh, so much. (laughs) Yeah. His, um, his old roommate became the efficient at our wedding because he was, he was pushing for it. Oh my God. I love you alls story. I love listening to you. Yeah, we have such a cute meet cute story. I don't know if anyone has like cute meet cute stories anymore, but that is cute. We have a great that's, meet cute story. <laughs> I was gonna say that's really cute. Like he's an author, he's a poet. You went to the like you, you know the little book book reading. That's reading. Really, that's like really yeah, I feel like that's a movie. It's so cute. Yeah, it is sweet. And he's he's gone through hell as my partner. Like when people finally found out about him, there was obligatory tabloid articles where they were like, who's Amanda Knox's new boy toy? Oh gosh. Yeah. This, this person with two master's degrees, we're just going to call him a boy toy now. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) We're just going to Photoshop some knives in his hands. Like people have done horrible things. They've reached out to him and been like, what's wrong with you? You fucker. Like, does she like hold a knife to your throat when you're having sex? Like uh, just like, Oh my God crazy assumptions made about him just because he happens to be my partner and he takes it all stride. And yeah, we're, we're super strong together and we work together. He's my partner in, in podcasting. He's currently sitting outside of the vocal booth right now, (laughs) uh, making sure that the audio is good so that we can (gasps) do good audio. And he's holding our infant daughter right now. (laughs) So he's a gem. (laughs) He's a gem. (laughs) Yeah. Y'all have like a really good dynamic. Yeah, you do. So you guys were married in 2020, right? And then you had, you welcomed your baby girl in July of this year. We usually end with people's advice and I Mm -hmm. would love to hear advice for new moms from you. Cause now that's part of who you are. That's part of your identity. And yes, Sarah I need some, you it. both are in this new mom role. Give, um, give me some good advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, God. um, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm like qualified to give advice <laughs> just yet. Um, what I can say you're qualified. Is, um, well, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm still figuring it out. Um, but one thing that has felt intuitively or I've intuitively figured out is that even the smallest infants are very, very effective communicators. And you mm-hmm. uh, like, it's such a good reminder of how, like just reading people. And of course you, it's a nonverbal thing. So understanding consent and desires and needs without Mm -hmm. verbal communication is such an important part of being a human. And I, I feel like we've sort of lost connection with like learning how to do that and putting importance on that. But like, if anything, being there for my daughter has 
very much been about like paying attention and mm. listen, like listening with all of my senses for what she's trying to communicate to me. And if anything, I feel like it's just emphasized to me that all of us are babies. We're all just babies and we're all just crying and we all have needs and we don't know how to communicate them. And so we like all of us need to be listening with all of our senses to each other in order to meet those needs um, is sort of the grand philosophical mm. statement that I can say about that. That is, that is so true. That like, I love uh, that. that extends motherhood. That is like, just like a human, <laughs> we does. need to all listen to each other's needs. Amanda, you're so interesting. I feel like we could talk forever about just like things you're doing right now and just yeah. advocating <laughs> for women and your podcast and I mean, you're an incredible writer and everything. Oh, so thanks. we just, we're so glad to connect with you. I know we have to wrap up soon. My daughter, I've muted myself a few times. My Charlotte is knocking at the door. She wants me to go out in the snow with her, <laughs> which I'm like looking outside. <laughs> like, do I want to go out? It looks very I mean, cold, it, but it only it's carpe diem, man. It doesn't happen in Tennessee all that often. No, you, yeah, you, you might as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she, she has her Elsa dress on. Like she said, she, she thinks she made it snow. So I'm just going to tell oh, her yeah. she did. Um, but Amanda, will you tell she the may, listeners? Maybe did. <laughs> yeah, she probably did. Um, <laughs> how to connect with you, um, how to listen to your podcast, anything you want to plug, all those good things so uh, awesome. people can know. Great. Thank you so much. My husband's in my podcast is called Labyrinths. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. You can just sort of look up Labyrinths and Amanda Knox. You'll probably find it. Um, if not, you can always go to knoxrobinson.com where I have links to all of the work I do, all the writing, all the podcasting, all la, la, la. Um, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where we have special sort of things that we give out every week to our patrons, like um, these fun little uh, weekly debates that my husband and I get to. We really, really believe in the collision and, and of ideas and in healthy disagreement. Um, and mm. we like to practice that on a, on a at least weekly basis. It's usually daily, but weekly <laughs> for our patrons. Um, so that's a really cool thing that we do that I like. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Amanda Knox and on Instagram at Amama Knox. And I think that's pretty much it. You're amazing. Well, we'll link it all in the show notes so people can connect with you and support you and all these incredible things you're doing. Congrats on your baby girl. And thank yes. you. Also, well, congrats thank you. to you guys. Wow. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, we'll stay connected on socials. We'll follow each other and what's going on in each other's lives and stuff. And we're just grateful to sit down with you today. I felt like everybody's going to love this episode. It was super encouraging and just really interesting. And thank you again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Also, make sure to check out our Amazon store. Thank you.